Welcome to Talk is Jericho's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And even though things are getting better out there and some businesses are starting to reopen and some of you guys are able to leave your houses a little more, there's still a lot of people in lockdown, including Duff McKagan way up there in Seattle, but hasn't stopped him from appearing on the Manitoba Melee on the Bubbly Bunch this week in AEW. And it hasn't stopped him from delivering on the joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan, you know, still in the backyard uh, quarantining. Like everybody else, I hope everybody's safe and has peace of mind. And uh, I think it's time to get your, you know, thoughts and your life together. And hopefully everybody's got their job or going to go back to their job. But uh, listen, if a child doesn't want to take his nap, is he really guilty of resisting arrest? Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. That was a good one. I like it. Uh, maybe coronavirus has been good for Duff. He's got some new quality jokes, uh, thinking some up and uh, researching. Uh, glad that Duff and Susan and the family are doing well. Great people. Uh, I know some parts of the country are slowly starting to reopen, but there's still lots of you staying home, and that's why you should come join me tomorrow night for the Saturday night special. It's back on, baby. Had to miss it last week. We had a, a death in the family, but everything's cool now. So we will be back with uh, Fozzie is the guest. Uh, we're drinking, telling stories, doing sing-alongs. Join me on Facebook Live or YouTube Live at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let's have some fun while we're all staying home together with my special guests, the guys and Fozzie. And if you can't be there live on Saturday night, you'll be able to check out the fun the next day on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, So go check us out Saturday night special, uh, Saturday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. All right. And uh, check out good old JR, Jim Ross, returning to talk as Jericho. He's got a new book out. It's called Under the Black Hat, and it's more stories about his incredible career in pro wrestling. Uh, He talks about his relationship with Vince McMahon uh, quite in depth. And of course, his last run with WWE. He's also talking about his decision to join AEW, how that came together, what he thinks about his role there. We'll get into that. His relationship with Steve Austin and his uh, wife, Jan, who has passed away. Uh, Some of the things that JR brought to WWE you might not know about as well. So much to talk about. One of my favorite guests, one of the greatest orators and storytellers in the world today. Jim Ross is here on Talk is Jericho, starting now. Uh, now that we are under uh, lockdown pretty much across the country, it's a perfect time to um, do a m- bunch of different things. And one of them, of course, is to read a good book, which I just finished reading, a great book, Under the Black Hat uh, by Jim Ross, who is with us here today. Uh, your second book, Jim, and it's, it's, it's super easy to read. I, I literally read it in less than a day, and it's 300 solid pages, so it's... Uh, it's quite a quite a fun read and a, and, a, and a good one for sure. I appreciate that, Chris. It was uh, kind of cathartic writing it because I started writing it after Jen got killed in March of seventeen. So right. I just had an unfinished story to tell. So he was like, "Why did you write a second book?" Well, the my first book took us up to Austin beating uh, Michaels at WrestleMania, and the Austin era has begun thing. Mm-hmm. But there was a, there was a whole hell of a lot of stories to tell after that. Uh, in this run. So it kind of catches everybody up. It starts off where that one left off and, and a lot of interesting topics I think were, uh, were addressed. You know, I think that uh, you and I are, are two of the few Mick might've done it, but I don't think he did where I wrote my books almost like uh, you're, you're telling a, a story because you're much the same as me. Like when you have a long career with lots of tales to tell, there's no reason to shove it all into one book. And you did the smart thing, which is do the first kind of chunk of your career and then leave it for the, for the sequel. 
and then pick up right where the last one left off. I, I did the same thing. It was, it's, it's a very good idea. Well, you know, the idea I had, and thank you, the idea I had from that was, you know, I read Brett's book. Yes. And, and it was so big. It was so expansive that uh, I felt like as a marketer that looking at it on a bookshelf, it was a little bit intimidating mm-hmm. because this is going to be a long hell of a right, read. Right, know? right, right. So I wanted to make sure that our book on the shelf was not intimidating. And uh, unfortunately, the timing of this damn virus coming out and shutting down a lot of stores didn't do the book any favors. But, you know, last week on my website, uh, in the first week that it was available, I sold and signed 1,500 books on my website. So I signed 1,500 books last week. So that's what I've been doing. I really, really, it's been <laughs> cool. But the bottom line is, is that thank God for you can get it at your door type thing. But I, uh, I just didn't want to have an intimidating book that d- didn't look inviting on the shelf. That's all. Well, it's the same as when you see, like, uh, I was going to watch The Irishman the other day on Netflix, but it's three-some hours long. And it, I, I feel the same way about Brett's book because it was such a great book, but I wish you would have done the same thing that we did and split it up amongst two or three books because, like you said, it's not as intimidating. And it's easier to read. Yes. It really is. I was going to say this, too, obviously not even at the same level because they're not even close to the same things, but when you wrote about Jan... Because this book really is the tale of two characters. I mean, obviously, you're the lead character, but it's a tale about Jan, and it's a tale about about Vince McMahon, and we'll get into that side of it. But I know from when, two things, when my mother died in 07, and then when the whole Benoit tragedy happened, sorry, my mom died in 05, and the whole uh, Benoit tragedy happened in 07, something that kind of helped me a lot in my healing process was writing it down in a book. And you mentioned it being very cathartic, did it help you uh, kind of come to terms with, with Jan's death a little bit more? Yeah, it did. Uh, yeah. It just made me better realize what she was to me, what she meant to me. By writing it down, it became real. It became official, so to speak. So it was cathartic. The hard part, Chris, was doing the audio book. Wow. The audio book was a monster because, man, I, I, kept, I could smell her perfume. I could see what she was wearing back in those days. So that, those, those feelings are very raw. And then getting to the end of the book where we had actually addressed uh, her death, uh, I, it was tough. I'll say this. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in a performance-like uh, environment. Uh, I, she was so real, and she's still vivid in my memory and my mind. And this house I'm sitting in is decorated by her. Every, every wall has got Jan on it, so to speak. So it was, it was challenging. It took me twice as long to read the audiobook as it did to read Slobberknocker simply because I'd get tears in my eyes and had to stop. I couldn't see to read and it's as, as silly as it sounds. I'm no fuddy duddy, I guess, but it was that real. So I, I thought, well, man, we've written a real book here. This is something, this son of a gun is going to be, uh, it's real. It's honest. So I, I, I'm glad you liked it though. I really did. And, and once again, you know, as, as a tribute to Jan for people that didn't know her, like, I say this with the utmost respect, and you know this is true. She was way cooler than you. Uh, yeah, no kidding. And prettier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a she better was, cook. She was a great, uh, just a really cool chick, as I, I used to call you. I said, you're a really cool chick, because she's a very cool person to talk about music or just, you know, what's going on, and very good vibe and a good, uh, a, a, a really great person. And a, a, you could, you could, she exuded that. Uh, and and it's, I really appreciated reading your kind of tributes to her and, and you, you included her throughout the book 
and kind of painted that picture as well. So I, I think it's important whenever somebody passes away like that, that we remember th- those good feelings and your good feelings about, about her. And that came across really, really strongly in the book. So I appreciate you writing that. Well, it's uh, all true. It's all true. It's very raw. It's very real. People were very surprised that I was so open and honest. But golly, Chris, you know, you've written so many great books. You've got to be honest. You've got to be open because the fan base nowadays, our, our customer base, so to speak, our fan base, they know when we're bullshitting. And, and they, they know the background of a lot of these things almost as well as we do. You know, we got to figure out the little nuances, the little, little nuggets that we can put in there that they don't know or they weren't privy to. So uh, it, was a, it was an interesting journey. But being honest, I felt like it was uh, extremely important, and especially in this book. Slavonok was honest, too, but it didn't have the compelling material that this one does. It's, it's a, one of our great mutual friends, Mick Foley, taught me when I was writing my first book that a book is not a place to settle a vendetta or to get revenge right. on anybody. And I really, once again, as we'll go into this, the kind of the ups and downs of all the <laughs> all the trials and tribulations you went through working for the WD and working for Vince, you never get into it of like, this mother did this and that. You always come across like a fan and just happy to be involved and happy to be contribute, but <laughs> you got put through the ringer working for Vince and WWE. And I had forgotten a lot of these stories of all the things that you, that you had to do. Yeah. I was a, I was a pawn in the booking at times. And uh, this is going to sound very egocentric, but so be it. It got a rating. Mm. Every time there's a train wreck with JR involved in it, it got a good quarter hour rating. So we both know that uh, when you have a measurable, like a quarter hour rating and the writing staff and the administration sees a number they're going to go back and, and grab some more of that number if they can. So that's why I think I get, kept getting booked in those ridiculous situations. You know, I felt like a cow on ice. God almighty, man, I'm not trained to take bumps. And, you know, I didn't realize how coarse the damn mat was. And this is, the ropes are hard. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm an older guy. So it was a challenge for me. And I got out of my, my element. But look, he was a unique cat, man. He loved ribbing me. I was his favorite person, I think, to rib because unfortunately for me, I didn't, uh, I showed my, my sleep, my, uh, what's the other deal? Uh, Heart. My, my, Heart on your sleeve. Yeah. yeah my, my feelings were always on my sleeve because I didn't play a character just like you didn't play a character. Yeah. You know, you, you're Chris period, different last name, big deal, but still Chris. And I was always Jr. So, uh, I, I just believe that it was, a. Uh, sometimes I was a pain in the ass to deal with. And sometimes I didn't, I wanted to get in my way. And sometimes I didn't like people interfering in my department because I felt like I had a good eye for talent. And after hiring a few guys that became very successful, I think Vince realized that as well. Yeah, it takes a while to to get the respect of Vince as a true money-making personality, a true money-making entity in his company. And, you know, both of us worked there for very long periods of time. And both of us got to that level. But it does take some time to get that respect from Vince where he goes, I can trust this guy and know he's coming at it for the right reasons, not just from the sycophant ass-kissing reasons, which you discuss uh, quite quite extensively in the book. Yeah, he's a different he's a different breed of cat. And look, people thought that, boy, JR's going to really – he's out of WWE. He's with AEW now. He has no – he'd have to cross that bridge anymore. Well, I'm not a bridge burn. I don't want to, I'm not going to do that. And the thing about it is for both of us, we have both had so much in common on this topic that he made us both a lot of money. 
And that's kind of why we got, I got in the business to be in the wrestling business, not knowing what rewards may lie ahead because I was never going to be a wrestler. How could I, how could I earn a good living, a significant living in another facet of our business? And I found a few things I was, I thought I was decent at, and I want to capitalize on those things. So he was, uh, he's just an interesting guy, man. I, it wasn't a hatchet job. I'm glad you saw the balance. It was a balance there. I, I put him over as much as I said, well, here we did this. I didn't like it, but I understand why they did it, but it didn't, it didn't suit me well. You know, the, the yeah. Dr. Heine thing was a, it was a sticking point for me because, uh, look, I didn't see Dr. Heine when it aired live because I was on a morphine drip getting out of ICU that morning. Well, explain, explain that story a little bit more for people that haven't, haven't heard it in a while. Well, you know, I, I have this, uh, I've been sick and I didn't want to admit illness. I didn't want to admit it because or pain or discomfort because I didn't want to be perceived as weak. And we both know in the wrestling business, weak personalities, weak character gets gobbled right up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I didn't want to be perceived as the weak guy and be my job. Be vulnerable. I was, I was uh, insecure, all this other stuff, sick, you know, I'm going to lose my spot, all the regular wrestling cliches. So, uh, I'm sitting at home. I get, a, I was in intensive care for nine days. I had a perforated colon. And I was poisoning myself and I was about 30 days away from dying with these stomach aches, man, I was, I mean, I was drinking Pepto-Bismol and all these things, these little homemade remedies, like it was water, but not, the pain would never go away. And then I started doing too many opiates and just mask my pain and all this other crap. So, uh, they do a thing. Vince calls me on Monday morning. He says, uh, Jan answers the phone and she says, it's Vince. I said, okay. So he's in LA doing, getting ready to do raw that later that day. He said, uh, Hey pal, uh, hope you're feeling better. I got a little something for you to show tonight. You're really going to like, so hope you watch. That's about it. So I was drugged, uh, you know, you know, legally and, and by the doctor's orders for this stuff I enduring. So, uh, I said, okay, thanks. Whatever it was, you know, I was buzzed. So, so I, I ended up falling asleep later in the day to watch, uh, and I didn't watch the show. And, uh, so I wake up to Jan crying and I'm thinking, what the hell has happened while I was asleep? You know, she had older parents that could have been a, a death or any tragedy. I didn't know. So I said, honey, what's wrong? She says, you didn't see what Vince did. Did you? And I said, no, I slept right through the whole show. So she says, why does he do these things? And I said, I don't, what did he do? She, she told me we read, we rewinded the, the DVR and it was the segment 11, the money segment of money, Night raw, the segment, every wrestler male or female covet to be in close the show. You know that as well as I, that's do. right. Uh, you know, years. That was the Austin and rock segment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's almost like they book raw Austin and rock in 11 and then work backwards, which is not a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, uh, it was in segment 11. I thought it was a little, uh, ridiculous use of time. There were talents on there that we were hoping to draw money with and sell merch with and pay-per-views, et cetera, et cetera. Could, that could have used that spotlight instead uh, it showed uh, me in a makeshift uh, little hospital room and uh, with my, my uh, ass sticking up in the air, a mannequin, obviously. They had nurse slobber knockers. So uh, that, was, that was another <laughs> shot. Yeah. Big, big, uh, uh, very, uh, yeah, very endowed subtle. woman. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of cleavage. Mm-hmm. And then at the, the payoff of it was he pulled, he started pulling things out of my ass, footballs. Jeez posters, whatever it was. <laughs> and so the end result was the payoff was the finish was him pulling a mannequin head 
that uh, needed to resemble that resembled me apparently, and he pulled my head out of my ass. So that was the payoff. Jr., get your head out of your ass. And I never understood that punchline. I never understood the creative. I'm not sure who all wrote that. I think Brian Gewurz was involved. I'm not mad at anybody about it. It was he was doing. Brian was doing what he said that he's supposed to do. He's a talented guy. Right. But but it was just a. I thought a waste of time, and I thought it was a little. It borderline on too personal. It wasn't business, and it wasn't funny. So why did we do it? And it made my wife cry. So it pissed me off. And that is the eternal question: Why? Why did he do it? God, who knows? You know, you you, you probably have as good an assumption as I do. I don't know why he did it. He thought it was entertaining. Everything it's like ribbing on the square in wrestling. You know, wrestlers are famous about not wanting to face up to the truth sometimes and make everything convenient for them. And, uh, the ribbing on the square becomes, you know, I've heard guys say, they say this, 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 and then I say that somebody would say, it's like a woman insulting a woman or coming on to her. Hey honey, I'm just teasing. Come on. You can't believe I'm serious about that. Can you? Oh well, yeah, I can. So that's kind of what it was. I, I never did understand it. He thought, he thought it was entertaining and that scared me because it wasn't. I remember, or you probably remember, and maybe you don't with all the different things that happened over the years, that one week, uh, the Dudley boys stole Christian and I's uh, clothes uh, from the locker room. And then we go out to the ring in towels, and then Spike Dudley comes up and pulls our towels off, and we're naked. And this is Michael Hayes telling me this, and I'm like, well, how are we going to be naked? He goes, you're really going to be naked. I'm like, What? He goes, you're, you're really going to be naked. I'm like, I am. There's no way. <laughs> and then my, Vince comes in. Hey, pal, you got a, I heard you got an issue. I said, well, Vince, how am I going to be naked out there? He's like, well, you're just going to be naked. And I'm like, there's kids out there. Like, we'll get arrested. Yeah. I'll get arrested. And then Bubba Dudley was going to throw the contents of our gym bag out. And he had uh, lingerie. So I said, so, so I'm a, now a transvestite. And a freaking exhibitionist is going to be naked on the stage. And Vince was so like, like disappointed is the word you use quite a bit. I'm disappointed in you, Chris. I'm like, what are you disappointed in? What, what am I supposed to do? And it's like, what mindset does this man have that makes this entertaining in any way, shape or form? Yeah, I don't, I didn't. He's the, he has a different sense of humor. You know, he's got, he loves sophomore humor. He loves bathroom humor, yes. whatever the words you want to use. He loves all that stuff. He loves, you know, I remember one time driving down the road with him. It just shows he's sophomore uh, in, in pitch. He's a, he was always kind of honoring, cantankerous a little bit. You know, one time we're driving from, from I don't know, one Columbus, Ohio to someplace. And that's when Bill Watts was there. So Watts, Bruce Pritchard, and Pat Patterson were in the car behind us, leaving me with Vince. Vince, of course, would not allow anybody else to drive but him, which is cool. So I don't mind riding shotgun. So what he does, he locks all the windows. And he, 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 he starts farting methane. Oh, I mean, I said, this shit's going to ruin my clothes. That's how bad this is. <laughs> it's like science. He had so much fun doing it. That's the same night he was, they had the, the one lane clothes on the interstate and they had these, all these big barrels up there. Like look like big cones things. Mm-hmm. He was running the cones. Like he was at a, at a Joey Chitwood thrill show. <laughs> and, and we got stopped by the cops, the state police and the state police. The bitch got his raw jacket on and I got my little denim raw jacket on back in the attitude era days. And uh, Vince says, well, I'm uh, Vince McMahon. We did our national television show just a few moments ago in uh, Columbus, and we're going to wherever. And uh, so uh, he was speeding and doing these, these cones. 
And the cop says, a little bitty cop, looked like a little Barney Fife-like guy, about 140 <laughs> pounds. His gun was bigger than him. He says, well, I guess that makes me the big boss man. <laughs> and he wrote him a damn ticket. And Vince just threw the ticket in the back. I said, what are you going to do with the ticket? He said, oh, somebody will take care of it. <laughs> what do you mean somebody will take care of it? If it's your ticket, it's going to be your driver's. So I grabbed the ticket, and I took it back to the office, and then the lawyers took it. So whoever they did, you know, they paid the fine, I'm sure. Of tickets. course. You're the one who's going to take care of it. And I think, like you mentioned, in Vince's world, where he's been on top for so long, there is a bubble that he's in, and he, he really doesn't give a shit. You know, he's like, he can pay off anybody and doesn't care. Well, the story, the, the rest of the story with Jan crying about the Dr. Heine thing, she asked me why he did it. I said, honey, I can't explain a lot of the things that he does. I don't know. Uh, if I knew, I would certainly tell you right now at this very moment to ease your pain. I don't know. And she, 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 she settled down a little bit. And then a few minutes, she says, I, I think I figured it out. He can't live in regular people's world. He's like Walt Disney and Michael Jackson. He cre- has created his own world wow. that he can function in much better than if he was a civilian or trying to, to do, a, you know, do civilian-like things. Mm-hmm. But you stop and think about it, Chris. How often does he separate from wrestling? Does he? I don't think so. I, by his own admission, he told me once. I remember one time I, I took some time off. It ended up being a couple of years, but he's like, I wish I could take some time off, but I just can't, Chris. I, I can't take any time off. What would happen if I did? You know, And I think that's, that's his mindset. He can't leave even just for a week or two weeks because what would happen to his creation? Yeah, and can you imagine... And he, he, he needed to go from being the head coach to the general manager, mm-hmm. he, he, but he never trusted anybody enough to do creative without his blessing or his influence. Right. And I, I find that to be real. That's kind of a scary situation, especially when the, the one guy that makes all the major decisions is at his stage of life. Now, not because he's not in good health. I hope he lives to be a hundred. He probably will He'll probably outlive me and you. His mom's still alive and she's almost a hundred. So yeah. So, you know, uh, he's got this uh, long life ahead of him, hopefully, but you can't have a 70 mid 70 year old guy calling all the plays. And I'm sure he's trying to get there with others, but apparently people aren't stepping up to his liking because he's still in the same role. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that, that's a great point, you know? Um, but let's talk a little bit about, about, cause it's something that I think it's a little bit not forgotten, but maybe needs to be refreshed is you as the head of talent relations, as you speak about in the book in 1999, when I came to WWE, you, you were the guy that brokered the deal with me at the Bombay bicycle club with Jerry Briscoe, but you amassed possibly the greatest roster in, in not just WWE history, but in wrestling history. And I'll let me expand on that is because for example, AEW has a great roster. WWE has a great roster now, but what you helped amass, including Steve and Mick is legit, main event money drawing superstars not just a great roster of talent and personality and but but when i came into WWE, there was i could probably name you and i could probably go back and forth and name eight to ten to twelve legit top drawing main eventers right and that's that's something very special that'll never happen again well it was, i got lucky a lot of it had a great staff and jerry briscoe started recruiting brock lesnar when lesnar was a, a junior in college so we had a system and we had a good team. That first group of guys that we signed, like uh, Kurt and Edge and Christian, for example, two guys I can remember, three I can remember uh, right off the top of my head. We had Tom Pritchard, who was a great coach, and Dory Jr., not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, teach fundamentals and, and uh, 
the respect for the business, a little crowd psychology, even, even though they were working out in the, in the warehouse there at Stanford at the TV studio, I always recruited looking for, I didn't need to find guys that could, could open a card. They're always going to trickle down. Right. I tried to find guys that I legitimately thought could be a main event star that could theoretically quote unquote headline WrestleMania. Hmm. And that was the, that was the goal. Could, could this guy in my wildest dreams, if he, if he really overachieves and, and lives up to his full potential, could he be a main eventer? And if I said to myself, yes, I sold myself on it. Then that's where I, I, I went hard for those guys. That's the hard, hard part of like hiring Eddie and Benoit and Saturn and Dean, you know, the issue there was that, you know, they didn't meet the height requirement. That, that was a selling job. You didn't meet the height requirement. Right. So, but you know, I knew that if I got you in front of Vince, you would sell yourself because I had no issues about your character, your integrity, your toughness, your, your longevity, and the fact that you can draw money on top. And I thought that I think Vince bought into that because the way you debuted there in Chicago and interrupting the rock was part was perfect. Perfect booking. It, it's interesting. Cause I'd never heard that story before you and I have known each other for almost you know, 20, 25 years now at this point, if you include Smokey Mountain Wrestling, but I had never heard that story that you told about how you came to Vince and kind of pitched my name. Because back at that time frame, and even to this day, Vince probably watches no outside wrestling other than what he sees in his own, you know, in his own arenas. So you were pitching guys to him, and he would pretty much go on your instinct and and trust you when you mentioned? Eventually, yes. Yeah, eventually, yes. In the beginning, no. Because it was always the same little boxes he had to check, you know, how big is he? Right. How tall is he? Vince likes to have guys in a perfect world. Everybody he on his roster would be guys that would walk through an airport. Right now, they'd be very empty. But if you walk through <laughs> a normal day on an airport, that they would stand out. People would turn their heads. They would look. And he thought a guy that was under six feet tall just blended in and was not going to be, could not stand out. And I, I understood his philosophy. I just didn't agree with it, which became a source of our consternation at times because he had a philosophy that he, he espoused and he believed in, and he had a great track record. But I had another philosophy that you can't judge all athletes and all performers by their height and their weight, their heart, their integrity, their passion, their skill set, all those things. And so uh, that's like I told you, I said, over the conversation, the one company nominated with you and, and Chris and Eddie and, those other, and other guys, was the fact I said, they can work with anybody. They're so good. They can work with anybody. They can work with big show. They can work with anybody size, Ray Mysterio from Ray Mysterio to big show. These guys that we signed could work very well with all of them. And ironically over time you did. You, you said in there one thing, just from a curious standpoint on my end that, that you told him at first, uh, when he was watching a tape or whatever, you had, you had, you had put together a highlight reel and he asked how tall I was. And you said somewhere between five, seven, and 5'10". I'm 5'10 and a half, like a little kid. I'm five and a half years old. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and you, but you knew that I was 5'10", 5'11", whatever it was. Why did you give him the low end of saying from 5'7 to 5'10"? What was the strategy on that? I wanted to give him a pleasant surprise when he found out you were taller. Gotcha. I knew how, I knew how tall you were. Mm-hmm. Of course. You know, I, <laughs> I talked to you. I was, I, we, you know, and I knew you. So, and I watched a ton of your matches. Japanese matches, Mexican matches. I studied you and I knew that you would fit in. Your age is perfect. You know, and the other thing about you, Chris, your durability was astounding. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you took, you always wrestle physically. And that's why I told Vincent, he's a tough little bastard. Mm. And then of course, 
when you face front face lock Goldberg back in the locker room that I witnessed, <laughs> he looked at it as a source of pride. Oh, my five ten star. He stood up for himself. <laughs> you know. So you have to worry about that. Chris ain't going to be pushed around. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting strategy that you would because that's the thing about Vince, and I'm starting to learn the same with, with Tony Khan, our new boss. You learn how to talk to them, and you learn how to pitch ideas in a way that they're going to pay attention. You know, the famous thing is you don't pitch ideas to Vince if he's hungry, if he's if, he, if he's eating. You, know, you don't know that at first. And if you're a smoker, you make sure you brush your teeth and use a lot of mouthwash before you talk to him. <laughs> he can smell. He's got a great sense of smell. He can smell all that damn stuff. So, But the thing about it is, if he hasn't had lunch, I used to find that out. When Beth Zaza was his assistant, uh, she was a real nice lady and did a great job there. She, he would, uh, I, she said, well, Vince is about ready to see you. I said, has he had lunch? He's eating lunch right now. So good. I'll be there in about 10 minutes. Right. Tell, I'll him, wait. tell him I'm in the bathroom or something. Tell him I'm going to men, whatever, but let him, let him get some food in him. And I got a better shot at getting some business taken care of. That's right. <laughs> There's another great quote that you had in, in, in the book too, that, um, I'd like you to, to explain a little bit more when you were talking about the individual contracts of signing guys. You said every contract has a different personality. What a great, what a great line that is. Ex- expand upon that. Because you're, you're, do, you're, you're dealing with individuals that have individual needs, individual skill sets, uh, individual expectations. What, was it gonna, what number was I going to have to come up with to get the, your name on the contract, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Because I knew that you were going to make more than the downside guarantee. All our plans, your plans, my plans, timing, all this good stuff. If that all came together, you're going to out earn your downside guarantee. And I, I would say here, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Cause you sure as hell know you always out earn your downside guarantee significantly. Right. So uh, that's kind of the deal. I always believe that our system was pretty valid and, and viable because you had the opportunity to earn more than you were being guaranteed. And you did because we had. You know, we paid off the house shows. The house shows were good. You know, we were on fire and the pay-per-views are another good source of additional income, discretionary as it may be. It was new money, merchandising, new money. So all those things added together, always generally always put guys over their, their downside guarantee. So it incentivized the talents like the old days when you're only paid on the houses. The more we drew, the more money we made. So guess what we try to do? Draw money. We don't want to put an ass every 18 inches. So I, I thought the system worked pretty good. It was always just a matter of you could tell guys that wanted a little bit more and a little bit more because that was their comfort zone. So the par- problem with that is an administrator. You can't allow a wrestler to be earning what they're comfortable with or they lose their incentive to want to work harder <laughs> more thir- and earn more. So that's kind of how I looked at that situation. You know, it's great, too, because I remember those days. And I never knew, by the way, you had a little bit of a breakdown of you would get 30 and 35% of the of the gross of the house and the main event got 3% or whatever it was. Like, that's that's old school Sam Muchnick Houston uh, information there. But you had to deal with this. And I came to you a few times as well, as I'm sure everybody did, with guys feeling underpaid. And you were the son of a bitch who, of course, we know now that it all goes through Vince, but you had to be the bad cop. You had to give the payoffs and you had to fire guys. And how, how much animosity did you have for, from, from the roster for that? Well, not as much as one would automatically believe because use yourself as an example. When you and I would meet uh, on, some, on this matter, on, on a pay issue, yeah, uh, you would 
I didn't talk to you any differently then than you and I are talking now. That's right. I didn't talk down to you. I didn't insult you. Uh, you know, hey, you're looking to have a job. What the hell, kid? You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that old, old school, the booker being an ex-wrestler stuff. Uh, you're lucky you got a job. How many more five ten guys are making a million a year? Shut up. Get out of my face. I, never, never. So because I had their feelings at, in, in mind and I respected them and I liked most of the guys, most of them, uh, I, I, uh, I felt like that was my obligation. So how I, we left the conversation generally diffused things. At least they knew I was honest. I was trying. If there was more money there, then I got them some more money. If it wasn't there, I'd come back and say, I looked at it. I talked to Vince about it. This is it. Unfortunately, next time, hopefully you'll be, you'll do better, whatever it was, but I never insulted the intelligence of, of somebody. I haven't, I rarely see, you know, uh, the only person I ever see talking about a payoff to any degree is Michael Hayes talking about Cowboys screwing him in the Superdome in the eighties. <laughs> he's still pissed off. He's still, he's still pissed off. So, uh, but seriously, most guys got over it because of how they were addressed and how I communicated with them. I just, I just never, you know, look, I worked for Bill Watts, man. He was a bad, bad man. He was mm. a tough, he, you know, he was a, my way highway guy. And I, I just believe that there was a better way to communicate with people. And as the generations changed as uh, your generation came in and now this younger generation's here, you got to learn to communicate with those guys individually. You can't just blanket. Here's how we do it. I just don't do it that way. I got, I, I want to get to know the guys. Look, I knew you're a smart guy. And uh, if I give you the truth and a reasonable answer, you're going to at least appreciate the answer being truthful, whether it may not result in the, res- the it may not result in what you wanted when you started the conversation, but you knew I was listening and you knew I gave a shit. There's another interesting story that I always appreciated was when Triple H and I headlined or whatever WrestleMania it was. It was The Rock versus Hogan. That was the 18. real main event. 18, but we were on last. And then in just in a passing conversation between he and I, I found out that he got four-fifths of the pie of the payoff of the match, and I got one-fifth. And I was furious because... You know, he was injured. You know how it is, man. It, you, it's, it's, it's two guys in this match, one heel, one baby face. So I remember I came to talk to you about that, and I was really pissed off. Like, to the point where I remember I called Shane McMahon for advice, and I said, like, I'm ready to walk out of here. And he's like, well, just go talk. Go talk to JR, and, and I'm sure Jim will talk to, to, to my dad or whatever. And you explained what Vince's theory was when somebody uh a hot baby face is going to win that people are going to pay money to see him win and that's more important than the actual foe that he's in the ring to face yeah that was his it was his rule of thumb and the other thing too you know you got to remember you do remember uh, that you know triple h had a unique relationship with the old man sure he did yeah he's going to father his grandchildren and i got hey i got no problem with that i mean i get it you know he he cared about his family in that respect but the good thing is is that when I talked to Vince about that, I, I basically pledged your case. Mm-hmm. Here's what here. I talked to Chris. Here's his logic, Vince. Here's how he feels about this matter. And I understand you know, I did all the payoffs with all the house shows that he didn't even see those cause he was too busy and he trusted right. my judgment. We used to work every Saturday at his house. And then when I said, Vince, I think I could do this payroll. Why don't I just do it and hand it in to you? And then you, you correct what you want to correct, change what you want to change. It's your money. And then, then I'll process it. Mm-hmm. And so I remember one day after we 
put that plan in place, Linda McMahon walks into my office, shuts the door. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm in trouble. What have I done? And she says, stand up. And I stood up and she gave me a big hug. And she said, thanks for giving me my husband back on the weekends. Hmm. So uh, that was a nice, that was really cool. I remember that very vividly. She's such a nice lady. But I told him what your, your point of view was. And he understood it pretty much, but he still was reluctant to pull the trigger. Hmm. Wow. But he saw the reasoning. I said, you know, uh, Triple H and Chris, Chris made that match. Not knocking Triple H's work because he's a hell of a worker, but he's been banged up. And the fact that we put those guys in a position to fail. Nobody gave a shit, all due respect, Chrissy, about Truth. Triple H after Rock and Hogan. They didn't care. It's like they were in their, uh, they were in their cigarette smoking mode in post-sex. <laughs> True story, though. Don't Absolutely. touch me. Don't touch me. I'm smoking. <laughs> you know. But, but, but who won't, really? And I say that in all respect because, Chris, nobody I know that I've ever worked with could have followed Rock and Hogan at that WrestleMania 18. Nobody. That's right. So uh, we underestimated Hogan's being a baby face. We put you guys in a bad spot. But, of course, the, the theory there was we got to end with the title. The title's the big thing. But, look, the fans had shot their load, man. They were smoking a cigarette and having a coffee or something. They didn't care. And that was a sad state of affairs for two great workers, two Hall of Fame guys that were on last for the championship. And we put them in a real bad spot. So I felt bad for you on that day. But bottom line is we – the end of the story, the good news is that we got the pay, payoff corrected, right? Absolutely. And it wasn't, Vince might have been hesitant, but it wasn't very long. I, I, I told you, and this was before I had the, the right or the confidence to go and speak to Vince myself. Because you're looking back at 2002, and like I said, it takes a while to get that respect from Vince where you're going to get a real fair shake out of it. But I talked to you. You went and talked to him. I remember you came back. To me, it seemed very quickly, five minutes, 10 minutes tops, and you said he's going to take care of it. And I was like, really? And you said, yeah, he's going to take care of it. And I said, well, what does that mean? He goes, you'll get a check in the mail. I don't know what it's going to be for, but he's going to take care of it. And he did send me a nice little uh, chunk of change that was way more than the original payoff that I got. Good. So it was, it, was, it was a good example of, of how you were a great conduit to explaining my case, and, and it, it really made a difference for me for sure. That's what talent relations – should be represent the talent, be the voice of the, of your talents, represent them honestly and fairly and with their best interests at heart. And sometimes that meant having conflict with Vince, which added to his and my woes going forward, because sometimes, you know, he's not a guy that likes to be corrected. Right. Or confronted. Oh no. I, I used to tell talents this all the time, new talents. I, I'm looking forward to this, that, and the other. I said, well, I, I want to, you know, talk to meet Vince and I really respect him, blah, blah, blah. Of course you do. Uh, you don't even know him. Uh, so you want his money. So I know why you're here. So, you know, it, it just, it was just a, uh, he just didn't like that be corrected much in that situation, especially on money. But, but he, at the end of the day, when he stopped and thought about it, you know, he was like, I said, hesitant, he was conflicted on what to do, I think, because there was quite a differentiation between what you were being paid and what Hunter was being paid for the same match. And so uh, he got that. And I said, you know, Chris has done a hell of a job. And he's, I just don't understand the, the, I understand Hunter getting more money, Vince, if that's where you feel, but this much more money, I don't get. Especially when I knew about it too. Cause it's funny. Cause you always hear about WrestleMania made events. You know, you're going to make a million dollars. And it's oh, like, yeah. holy smokes. It was, <laughs> it was a long way from that. One of the things I, I was so curious about 
regarding WrestleMania is so polarizing as it relates to payoffs back in the, those days. I don't know how they're doing it now. I have no idea. But uh, if guys are some salary or they get extra money for it, I don't know. I don't know. It's none of my business, as I've mentioned. But he, he was just a – he tried to be fair, but sometimes he didn't like changing his mind. And, and uh, so we got that done, and I'm glad that it worked out for you. And, 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 again, I think that was important for your relationship with him, that you stood up for yourself. You had a valid reason. It just wasn't poor me. It was a, it was a, it was a, a very interesting and very obvious uh, debate. How can this difference in pay be so d- drastic? Right. And so we messed up there. So, and the, and the, in all those years that I was in, in that role, the only payroll he really ever looked at was pay-per-views. And then he had, the, and he had this propensity. I always knew he was going to change a few things. So that's why I'd pay some guys low on the first draft because mm-hmm. I knew he was going to bonus it up. And then him bonusing it up made him feel good about doing it. Right. And, he, and he thought it would ingratiate him with the talents for getting a, a, a nice, healthy payoff. So I, I enjoyed all that, man. Was there some guys that you signed that you thought for sure were going to be top main event guys that just didn't pan out that way? Hmm. I get asked that a lot. Who failed? You know, who was your disappointments? You no, know, I, I hate to. I wouldn't say that, but just some guys don't reach reach the levels that you expect. You know what I mean? Like, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll throw one right at you, at you because of the way he was booked. I thought, you know, I, I almost hate using this name, but Jack Swagger, when he came in, they never really gave him his potential. We're doing that now in AEW as Jake Hager, and that's why, you know, I, I suggested him coming in and you did the same. There's just certain guys that get booked into a corner that don't go as high up the food chain as they should have. And that's kind of what I'm asking you. Yeah, there were there were a few guys that were they found their comfort zone. They found the money that they needed to make, and they didn't think they needed to make any more. We always need to make more money. I don't care what you're earning. We always could. Sure. We always want to make more. And if we don't, then we need to be remotivated. We got to be reprioritized in our own in our own thinking. Uh, I'm trying to think of anybody that that we brought in. I, I'll give you one example. Uh, Doctor Death. I've, I signed Doctor Death for one run to come in and work with Austin. Uh, and Doc had, you know, had been beat up, banged up, but he had some, he still had some juice in him for one program. And at old time's sake, I'm a sentimental son of a gun. Uh, I, I wanted to give him one chance to be a star or have some good, a uh, good spotlight in WWE. I thought he could be a nice heel opponent that people would believe could actually beat stone cold. That could give stone cold a run for his toughness money. And then Doc, we got Doc in that stupid ass uh, brawl for it all that tore his hamstring, rolled right off his leg, and then he gets knocked out. And everybody thought that the, the, the whole brawl for all was fixed. And JR did this. And, like I'm the creative guy now. Right. You know, come on. Stu- that's so stupid. I didn't endorse the brawl for it all. I hated it. I know that uh, uh, our buddies up in Canada, uh, Dark Side of the Ring, are going to do a show about it. Yes. And it's excellent. It's excellent just to see how ridiculous the whole concept of it was. Oh, it's horrible. Uh, it, was, I was in, it was just embarrassing and we may try to make it work, but Swagger's a good example, man. He he's look guys like yourself. I tell you this people all the time, the difference in AEW, one of the differences, there's a lot of differences by the way, in AEW and, and WWE, some good, some bad, depending on your perspective, uh, was that, uh, Swagger yourself, Moxley, the former Luke Harper, all these cats, they, Cody, they, Cody, you can, t- you can call your own plays now. You can create your own content. How great is it? I told somebody this just yesterday on an interview I did. I said, the thing that Chris Jericho did in his backyard, I'm assuming it's your backyard, yes. was his idea, his concept. And so 
I'm assuming that AEW had no idea exactly what you were going to do until they received the tape. So consequently, you're being encouraged to create your own content and think on your own and try to create good content. We don't have any writers, as you well know, Chris. And I don't know that we'll ever need any writers in AEW. Challenge the talents like it was in a territory to come up with ticket selling, ratings garnering uh, promos. And that's kind of where we are right now. So, but Swagger's one of those guys that never got a big opportunity. Uh, you know, I got a lot of respect for Dutch Mantel, but Vince is never going to use Dutch Mantel in a, in a main event role. So all of a sudden, Swagger is, is, is tagged, is joined to hip with Dutch and that, you know, uh, the, the American thing, you know, uh, and it just, it was built to fail in my estimation. So now Swagger has, you know, uh, he's got this chance to be everything he ever wanted to be in wrestling. It's going to be up to him. And so now when guys fall short, they can walk straight to the mirror because they, they, if you didn't do enough to get your character over, that's your fault. That's your fault as a talent. And then we had this meeting recently and talking about, you know, talents can do things on their own. And you know, the young bucks are good at videos. You're awesome. You know, all these guys are now being encouraged to be creative. And I think that content's going to be wonderful because we're used to seeing these, uh, iPhone, uh, videos. My God, Chris, look at, uh, watch CNN. These guys are broadcasting from home on zoom or something. That's yeah. That's what I said. We saw a whole presentation of iHeartRadio on NBC last week with Alicia Keys in her living room playing and singing. I mean, it's just the kind of the way the way the world is right now. Yeah. So a lot of the, I look at this, a lot of guys got new lease on life and I'm not excluding myself either because since I've been uh, doing the show since October when we started until recently when I'm not flying by order of Tony Khan, and I appreciate it because I'm in the high risk group, this goddamn virus. I don't, I don't need to get, you know, people my age that get it have a 30% chance of dying. So I kind of, yes. don't, I don't like the mods. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm staying at home, whether I like it or not for yeah. my own health and common sense and my grandchildren, my daughters and the whole nine yards. I don't want to be around a while, mm-hmm. but you know, I, since I've been on, on the headset, I've heard Tony Khan maybe since October three or four times. And it was to remind me of something or to say, we just changed this. See if you can work this in type deal. So as the flow of information is made available, he would share it with me. But as he ever came on and say, don't say this or say that, or, 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 you know, all this heavy handed producing never. So if you hear our work, uh, and I know you're going to, you're, you're going to do some stuff with Sh- Shivani and I'm, I'm looking forward to all that, depending on, you know, when we're airing the, when we're taping this, it hasn't aired yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited about that because it's a new voice. It's a new presentation, but Tony's allowed me to be me for better or for worse. And there's a good side of Jr. Sometimes I forget a name. I mispronounce a, a, a name or whatever. That's my bad. Uh, and, but the storytelling is still going to be what I do. And I, Tony knows that. So working in that environment in a creative world where you're not governed, you're not, you're not stymied is an amazing freedom of expression. Let me ask you on the other side of the coin, uh, who are some of the guys that, that, that you, that you brought on that overachieved and maybe got even higher up the food chain than you expected? Well, the number one overachiever I probably signed was, was Mick. Wow. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Mick was, uh, Mick had had multiple tryouts. I don't know how many, two or three, I think. And he was always turned down, never hired. And so I got to know Mick in, uh, WCW. He was actually, I, I saw Mick first in WCCW in Dallas and I was on the booking committee at WW, WCW. And I said, we, this is a guy we need. He can be a, he's a great heel. He takes big bumps, 300 pounds. He's a, 
you know, big dude. And he's got great character. Oh, he's, you know, and I love that mixed locker room etiquette was great. And we needed leaders in the locker room. You always do. So I go to Vince and say, I want to hire Mick Foley. And he said, Oh no, JR, we're not doing that. I'm going to go along with you on most of these things. I'm not, not on that one. I said, I said, Vince, I don't understand that. We need an opponent for the undertaker. Undertaker is a seven foot baby face. Think about that to be a seven foot baby face and be able to legitimately and believably sell for, for your opponent. The opponent has to have some uh, degree of danger, uh, element of size and match up well, et cetera, et cetera. And then feed a great comeback and Mick could do all those things. So I, it was a one-off in my mind, at least getting to take her. He could have a Roman taker, make him some money, get on the map. And then I've done my, my doing. So Vince, no. So finally he says, okay, JR, God damn, you're wearing me out, which I did a lot. So he says, uh, you're wearing me out. God damn it. Okay. Here's the deal. You hire him because I want you to know what it feels like to have your heart broken by a talent that you have great belief in. So just prepare for that. So it'll be a great lesson for you to learn. So hire him. God damn it. Hire him. So I hired him and then, uh, he becomes a mankind character, right? So we're doing this interview, Mick and myself at a studio with no script, just kind of had an outline of what we're going to, where we're headed, a little direction. Here's our destination, Mick. We're going to get there in these parts, blah, blah, blah. No lines, no, no writers, no nothing. So it was organic and natural. So we're doing this interview and it's, it's moving along real well. Somebody has got to take a pee break or change tape or something. I don't know what it was. So we took a little break and unbeknownst to Mick and myself, Vince had, had wandered in and he was standing in the dark. We couldn't even see him. And he said, mm-hmm. he said, and it reminded me of that line that he did on, uh, that was on WrestleMania. This is good shit. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. you could see the relief on Mick, Mick Foley and I were, it was like, my God, we just heard the magic word. He likes us. <laughs> and, you know, Mikey likes us. And so all of a sudden we kill that son of a bitch. And he, Mick gives him an amandible claw the end and all this other people are screaming and all that. And Vince loved it. So he saw a different side of Mick in a different presentation other than the cactus Jack character that he didn't, he didn't like then, but he grew to love later along with dude love and, and mankind. So that was the deal with Mick. That's because Mick had such great personality because much like when Vince sees, you know, Chris Jericho at five ten. And he sees Mick Foley as a fat guy, a big fat guy. Yep. That's kind of what you have to deal with as as a person or as a as a, as a talent coordinator, uh, uh, head of talent relations when you're trying to pitch it to him. Yeah. Well, yeah. He had certain. He went to size first on everything. Uh, look, size. The you know we hired a lot of guys. I remember hiring. Uh, we hired Occam Albright, the German guy. <laughs> yeah. Bodybuilder who had a real hot wife. I think she had more interest in the, in the WWE, uh, places and others, but nonetheless, <laughs> she was a very attractive woman, very convincing. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, he was a workout guy. He was a bodybuilder and Vince loves bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. So we hired Occam and he sucked. He was horrible. You know, then we, then I don't, I don't know, just the bodybuilding thing. He, and he still loves it. And I think that's what driven to Hunter real close in the beginning because of Hunter's diet. In fact, he didn't drink, he didn't do drugs. Uh, you know, Vince liked all that stuff. He loved the, the gym stuff and the Hunter symmetry and all these things, but Hunter was just one of the many that he, he enjoyed that those, those physiques. So that's just his thing, man. It's his deal. 
Did that come from Vince Sr.? Was the WWF, WWF in the 70s, was it a big man territory? Or was oh, Vince oh, yeah. just always, yeah, it was? Yeah, that's why, that's why they used that big uh, blue cage that had the big, the, 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 where you could climb up. Yeah. And easily, more easily, uh, to facilitate one of the weakest goddamn finishes in the history of wrestling, the escaping the cage. Right. <laughs> if I was a baby face and you were, and I was in a cage match, it was supposed to be the blow off and I was going to go over so I could continue my goddamn push. I, I don't want to walk away from a fight. Mm-hmm. I'm a heel. I'm not, I'm cause all you're doing is running. You're escaping. You're running from your fight and you win by running from your fight. Where does that ever work? It, it's never worked in history. It's never worked in fighting. It's never worked in anything, but that's a finish that was convenient for some of the talents to acquiesce and appease talents. So, but that big old blue cage was a uh, uh, indication of that. And, uh, when I got the job at talent relations, one of the first things I did was get rid of all those old rings that were remnants of that super heavyweight air, the Hogan Bundy, they were hard as rocks. And so I changed the ring. So they're more buck friendly and it more, it was more conducive to athletically oriented wrestlers and all due respect to Hogan, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, in a lot of people's mind of all time, uh, made a lot of money, put everybody, everybody, everybody in other wrestling companies made money because Hogan got over because I know mid South and UWF was had some decent years during the, the early years of WrestleMania. It, it helped all the business. So Hogan, we owe all of us kind of owe Hogan a thank you very much, brother mm-hmm. situation, but the, they, the, the, the ring was too hard. Uh, you know, it just, we, the guys weren't as bump friendly as they are now. It wasn't. So that's, that's one of the things I did, but that was an indication to your basic your first question about did Vince senior, like the big guys, if Bruno San Martino had not been so thick, so strong, right. He was five ten. Mm-hmm. you know, so we could all do the math there, but he had a look, he looked, but Bruno was five ten and weighed, you know, two sixty five, two eighty. You know, maybe, maybe a little bit more the power lifter and all that stuff, you know, what a lovely man, but he got, he was, he got a pass, but notice all the heels, just about all the heels that Hogan, yeah. that the Bruno work with were monsters. It was a monster heel factory because it simplified the booking concepts. It simplified the protocol and the process of how do you book your champion and any booker worth a shit will always in their writing TV, make sure that their champion, whomever that may be. Heel or babyface, short term or long term, that that title is protected and made to be pristine. And Bruno, for all those years, made the championship at WWF pristine. So, uh, but he was an exception to the rule. So, I think size was always a big issue. I'm sure Vince got a, and he should have. I got a lot of my stuff from Vince. And Vince got a lot of his stuff from his dad. And that that would be the fact that I want people turning their heads in airports when they see this guy walk through. That was hey. He didn't have King Kong Bundy in the main event with Hogan because Bundy was an amazing athlete. God bless Chris. You know, he, he didn't, he didn't, Chris had a hard time feeding a comeback because he was so big. It was one or two big bumps. That's it. We're done. Leg drop. Thank you. Let's go home. So that's, uh, that's kind of, I, I think you're right about that. You're onto something there because going back in time and looking at all the, the Smasher Sloans and the Stan Stasiaks and all these guys that were average to semi-main level heels. They got them out on TV with a bunch of wins. They gave them momentum, which guys don't get oftentimes nowadays. Momentum's big. You can't do 50-50 booking or you win one, you lose three, whatever. That'll work. That'll work to get somebody over. So mm. I, I think that's where we are we're on that deal. But Vince is always a size guy. And look, we just talked about the guy. He, he had the biggest baby face at the time 
other than Andre, exclude Andre from all these conversations, but he had the biggest, uh, top baby face in, uh, in modern times in, in Hogan, who was, you know, six, six or six, seven or six, five or whatever the hell he was, but he's around 300 pounds. That's right. That takes unique booking and pairing. Uh, cause the, the big baby face has got to have somebody that he or she can sell. And that was kind of the deal. Speaking of, of biggest stars of all time, let's talk a little bit about your, your very unique relationship with, uh, with Steve Austin, because you're his great friend. You're a mentor to him. A lot of ways, obviously Vince is the boss, but you're also in charge of a lot of his, you know, inner workings, et cetera, et cetera. So what was going on with Steve around the time when you were, when you were the head of talent relations? Uh, it was, uh, chaotic at times, combustible at times, dramatic at times. And then it led to the best of times. Mm-hmm. Steve was a, a guy that didn't trust people well. And it, the, the one thing about Steve that I learned earlier on, he don't need to know how to make the watch. Just tell him what time it is. I remember him sitting in a, in the stands and I want to think it was in Houston. And, uh, at a pay-per-view, I believe it was, and he was all sold up. You could tell he was swollen like a toad. He was angry, you know, sulking and he was married to Deborah at the time. So I walk over near him and I see her face, look at me and kind of give me that, uh, oh, he's, this ain't going to be good. So I, I, I say, Hey, Steve, what's up? I can tell you, you ain't happy. So what, tell me how I can help you. Tell me how I can make you happy. And he said, there's all, of course, it's always about the two C's, Chris. Cash or creative, hmm, right? Cash or creative. So I, he was getting a push, the old proverbial loving push that, uh, I oftentimes kid about on my grilling JR podcast. Cause I think it's such a ridiculous thing. People Why is that? Well, people don't have an idea what it means. So you get some, some ham and egger out there saying, well, if you got a good push, what would you describe, sir, as a good push? How would you, how would you organize a good push? What would you do? <laughs> they got a clue. They heard the right. use, they heard the term on social media. So now they think they know what it means. And most, some do, most don't. In your opinion, in your opinion, what does it mean? Well, it means that you uh, commit to doing all you can to get a talent over. That includes winning streaks, believable storylines, adequate TV time to tell their stories and to do things, put your face on a bus or a, on a, on a truck, a semi-trailer like you have, the WWE has, and we have an AEW now. It's a, it's a complete promotional package where you are committed to that talent to push them as far as they can go until they take over and they, and they take ownership. Well, nobody can convince me that Steve Austin didn't take ownership. Right. He took ownership. He, he started designing t-shirts, you know, all these things. He started, you know, lay, helping lay out matches or I'll do this. I don't like that. Let's do this, whatever. So, uh, I said, what's the deal? And he said, well, I got, I guess he got, well, it was after the first year. He said, I got my, uh, my 1040 or for 1099 tax thing. And he said, uh, he said, I didn't realize I wasn't making any money. Now I think he probably made, you know, 500 grand. That's a lot of money to me, but nonetheless, he felt like he needed to be making more money. He thought he was ahead of the curve on his push that he was already deserving top money. So I go to Vince. I said, stay right here. Stay right here, Steve. I'll be back in a minute. So I go to Vince's office, run somebody out. I said, I got a, I got a situation with Austin. He talked to you about real quick. So everybody cleared the room. I said, here's the deal. Here's what he made last year. He thinks he's been underpaid. He said, what do you suggest? I suggest we give him a new contract with more money. You know, he's going to make it. He's there. He's close. He's, he's this close to being the guy. And so Vince said, yeah, you're right. So what number do you think it's going to take? So I, I remember what the number was, but it was, you know, 
another couple hundred grand more than he was earning downside. And I went back to him and said, okay, here's the deal. I think I said, I got you a 200 grand raise or $150,000 raise or whatever it was. And he looked at me in disbelief because I told him I would be back with good news. And I kept my word. So mm -hmm. that was the precedent of what of our relationship, honesty. And, uh, you know, and I'm probably one of the only guy, look, we're both in the same kettle of fish. We're both, you know, he's a Texan redneck. I'm an Oklahoma redneck. We grew up on football and barbecue and cold beer. We had a lot of things in common. We talked alike. We, we had similar views. And so he, he I became his most trusted, uh, person in the company, but I encouraged him all along. I said, you got to worry about my, our relationship. We're good, buddy, but you need to worry about your, don't worry. You need to be concerned about your relationship with Vince. So I'm going to give you one piece of great advice. Do never, never confront him. Always converse with him. Converse, do not confront because mm -hmm. he don't, he don't do well with confrontations. He does really well if you're civil and smart and strategic, uh, in your conversations, you'll get a lot more than you ever dreamed. So, and I think uh, most guys, I've t I told that same thing to a lot of guys converse, don't confront. And I go, oh, I think it was good, good advice. Yeah, man. I mean, I think Steve himself told me a variation of that passing along the wisdom that you had, you know, given to him. Yeah. The, the, once again, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about in this book, but, um, another thing that happens quite often <laughs> is they kept trying to replace you even to this day and they kept bringing you back. Obviously, that's a feather in your cap, but was it start to kind of piss you off? We're like, here we go again. It did in the beginning a great deal because I couldn't understand the, the motive. And, and over time, I, I kind of got it. Even though I didn't agree with it, I understood. You know, they, Vince wanted to change the image of his company. He wanted to change the image of being a pro wrestling company to a sports entertainment company. And uh, to him, I was uh, not the, the ideal look sound of the guy. He wanted to be the voice of his brand, you know, Southern chubby, the bell's palsy had me speaking with a little speech impediment. I couldn't smile. And by all rights, if you, if you just told somebody in the, in the civilian world that this, well, that guy doesn't deserve to be on television. Right. 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 But I was never on TV for my looks. I was on TV for my passion and my storytelling and recognizing situations to help get talent over. That's what I did. It's real simple. And I, I like to think I did it. Okay. And so all of a sudden you're, you're, you're being replaced in the hopes of, uh, you know, that's like when I got taken off the air one time, they were going to hire Mike Goldberg, who at the time was the voice of USC. Right. And, uh, and, uh, Mike Goldberg, I guess got offered a hell of a lot of money, a lot more than I was making from what I hear. And, uh, my friend, Mark Ratner, who was the uh, executive director of the Nevada state athletic commission is now an EVP or a VP with, uh, USC and working for Dana White. Goldberg knew that Mark Ratner was a big wrestling fan. He didn't know that he knew me and I knew Mark. So he goes to Mark Ratner and says, Hey, I got this offer. What do you think? I know you're wrestling. You like wrestling. You're blah, blah, blah. You're a fan. Uh, they want me to replace Jim Ross. And he said, that would be a huge mistake because people will hate you. Mm, right. If he said for whatever their reasons are, and they, they may be varied. People love Jr. He, they trust him. They're comfortable with him. They like the sound. They, he's their guy. The voice of their childhood, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, Goldberg turned down the job and stayed at USC. So I'm sitting out in my backyard. I've been relieved of my post. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm getting paid. So I guess that's one thing that's good. And, uh, Kevin Dunn calls me and says, uh, uh, Hey, uh, what are you doing? Uh, what day was it? Oh, what are you doing Monday night? I think it was Monday night. 
I said, well, I'm going to watch Raw, I guess. I'm here at home, you know, you guys took, you guys got rid of my, I'm not working anymore. He said, well, we, uh, we need you to come to uh, Dallas for what? Cause I'm thinking, oh, it's another angle. Who's ass am I going to kiss this time? Cause I was a little bitter. I'm going to kiss somebody else's ass. Literally. Yeah. 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 Uh, or made fun of being fat shamed, Southern shamed. What's the, what's the deal this time? No, JR, we need you to come do the show play by play. I said, oh, so Goldberg didn't sign. He did silence. I said, okay, I'll be there. And so I could tell when I got there, I was ready to work. I didn't know. I wasn't angry where I was going to piss on my work, but I could tell Vince was not excited to see me, but I was the option and that bothered him. I think. So we, he said, I'm thinking he's thinking, well, we got to get more depth. We got to get, I got to see more people. You know, I want to replace Jr. with a younger guy with a more, uh, with a not, not a non-regional guy. So that, that was the mission over the time in the beginning. It, I was angry cause I didn't understand it. I thought my work was good. I thought it was personal. Uh, and I didn't think that was the right reason to, to uh, replace somebody who was doing a decent job and been loyal. And was also, by the way, fulfilling a lot of other, wearing a lot of other hats and trying to represent the company in this talent relations thing specifically. So, uh, over time I stopped giving a shit, Chris, over time, I just figured it was going to happen. So, you know, Laura coming out and firing me on TV. That was a joke. You see, that, that was an inside rib. Mm-hmm. Laura replaced me as a head of tower relations. So, well, this would be good. Well, do you see the, I, I know how these went because Vince's stooges were not all loyal. They would tell you what's going on. Hey, Vince said, be sure you get JR's face. This is going to be classic. Okay. Same thing. When I got Smith's to move from raw after, after being told the night before, there's no way we're going to break up Madden and Summerall referring to Lawler and myself. Right. And of course they did. And I knew it was coming because they put the camera right in front of the announce desk with a big old, my big fat face filling this, filling the screen. Cause he didn't want to miss anything. Same deal. Well, this is going to be good. Watch JR's face. So I, I said this, I no sell it. I no sold it on camera. But then the next day I didn't want to go to work and be do SmackDown until he told me, well, I had to move. I've changed a lot of lives here to JR, including my son-in-law. So he's moved from raw to SmackDown, which lasted about a week. seemed like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but it's just, just tell me, Hey, JR, you, you did a great job. They can't tell you you're getting too old. Cause that's a lawsuit. They can't tell you get your bells positive as a factor. Cause that's a lawsuit as, <laughs> as if I was going to sue them. I know wasn't quite frankly, I know that's I'm not very litigious in that respect. So a lot of those things happen and here's the deal. Here's why I was always the consternation, Chris, I couldn't understand why it was being done. And I was never told. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, it could be, well, you're not recognizing false finishes quick enough. You're not getting the talent over well enough, uh, whatever, 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 nothing. It's just, I knew the reasons, but I knew legally they were reluctant to tell me. Well, it's funny because I, I had the same thing on the very first draft, which I think was about in 2000 or so, maybe 2001, uh, they, they always like to work the talent, which I never understood. You have a story about you got moved to SmackDown and nobody told you and it blindsided. you remember when they had the first draft? Because I was in some kind of a match with Stephanie and Triple H, and if the winner, the winner becomes the champion, so I wasn't announced as the draft pick. I had to have my friend Luther, actually. I had to call him and say, dude, can you go online and check the website and find out what show I'm on? at like 12 o'clock at night because no one would tell me you have to go find her on the website. Why do I have to find her on the website? What show I'm on? You know, why didn't they tell you that you're going to SmackDown? You know, all of these things would drive me crazy when they would do that stuff. I think that, uh, 
that comes down to shitty communication. Yeah. And, and reluctance to communicate with the talent. And, and, and ultimately, that tells me that somebody may not respect the talent as much as they purport. Why not just be honest? I would have never have had the relationship with Stone Cold in all those years where he was going through all kinds of issues, surgeries and career-threatening situations, all these things, if I had not been honest and upfront and respected him as a man. I felt at times I was not respected as a man and that the draft was one of those situations. If I had been told the night before by Kevin Dunn, who I enjoyed working with, Kevin's been in my home here. He's brought his two sons here to go to OU football games, and I love their company. They're, he's a good guy in that regard for, for that. For, we're football fans together. But uh, he told me before, that's, he's the one that said, we'd be crazy, JR, to give us a little credit. You think we're going to break up Madden and Summerall over this damn draft? And I said, well, I hold mm-hmm. on. Well, don't worry about it. So then the next day, I, I noticed a lot of people, the, a lot of the writers, all, they all knew, but they kayfaved me. And that's what I asked Vince. I said, was it such an issue to be honest with me and up front? I said, I guarantee you, Hunter knew where he was going before the draft. Why didn't I have the same respect? Well, we just wanted to catch your real, your real reaction. Like it's all, all the name of theater, all the name of theater, Mr. DeMille bullshit. <laughs> yeah. It was a rib. That's all it was. It was a rib. So you could, you could belly laugh and chuckle and look at OJR. We got him again. You know, I remember you guys probably, you probably remember this when, um, we had our very first, it was called taboo Tuesday yeah. where the fans voted on what matches you would have. And everybody had like, I don't know, just throwing examples, Kane versus Kurt Angle in a cage match or a street fight or a last man standing, whatever. So everybody knew who they were going to be wrestling, at least. Whatever gimmick match there is, whatever. For me, I was the Intercontinental Champion, and it was Jericho versus one of 20 guys, right? Yeah. 20 guys. And I said to Kevin Dunn a couple hours before the show, can you at least tell me like who's in the lead? No. Well, can you tell me who the top three are? No. I'm like, why? Well, we want it to be a surprise. For me, I'm the one who has to do the match. <laughs> Like, who are we surprising here? Thankfully, it was almost a test, I think, and I kind of formulated, okay, the top three guys, it's either going to be, you know, Sheldon, Benjamin, Batista, Christian, whoever was out there, and I was able to put it together, ended up being Sheldon, I just called most of it in the ring, but, you know, I was like, why, why are you not telling me? Like, I don't get it, but that's just how the company and how Vince... That's how Vince wanted it, and Kevin Dunn is the ultimate company man extremely loyal, and now, thanks to his loyalty and hard work, extremely rich. So maybe yeah. Kevin done one at the end, of the end of the day. And I'm happy for that. You know, come on. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it was, it was a, a unique set of rules. I, I would I kind of want the guys that are working to know who's gonna, who you're going to dance with, you know? Uh, well, you know, it would sure make it easier. And like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm not to pat myself on the back, especially back then. I mean, I'm much better now, but I was one of the few guys that could probably have a good match with Chuck Palumbo with – 30 seconds notice but <laughs> but um as we start to to wind down here what was the final straw that let led you to come to aew because much like myself uh i never thought vince would let me go and i sh- didn't think he would, he would let you go either just because of the fact that aew existed 
So to me, it was a big deal for both of us to quote unquote, get out uh, after all the tenure and how important we were to that company uh, during various points of our careers. Well, uh, in 2018, I, I signed it after Jen uh, got killed in 17, in March of 17, uh, Vince and Kevin uh, came to me and said, we want you to sign a new two-year deal. And uh, I don't know if it was a, a sympathy contract or what. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, but nonetheless, I appreciated it. And then they brought me to WrestleMania, not even two weeks after Jen got killed. And I did, I think I did maybe Reigns and Taker or something. I'm not sure. I did the last match with uh, Michael Cole and, and I think JBL, who I'm, sh- who I'm sure did not want me out there. And so, uh, anyway, uh, it was cool. The re- reaction, I was a surprise. Crowd went nuts. I love that. It made me feel good. My eyes watered up because it was all so raw and so, I was so grieving. So I, I go back and do that. And then uh, in 2017, I didn't do much. In 2018, my last full year of the contract, uh, I did, I worked twice. I had two bookings in one year. I went to New York city and sat at the Hammerstein ballroom. I think that's what it was. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, for like three and a half or four hours, Lawler and I, and we call one four minute match. Uh, we weren't even on the main show. We, and, and we call one four minute match. It was a joke. Why were we here? Lawler and I had a lot to do with the success of Monday night raw. I don't give a shit what anybody says. We were the soundtrack of, of your music and other guys' music. We put the lyrics as best we could th- together, and it made us a, a cool presentation. So that was disrespect. Then the next booking I got, the Prince of Saudi Arabia, even though he's somewhat disconnected, he wanted Yokozuna, Ultimate Warrior, <laughs> and J.R. the King on the show. Because as a kid, he grew up watching those old Attitude Era tapes, the Prince of Saudi Arabia. Okay, so... We go over there. I think, well, Lawler, I got to call a match or two. Why not? It's a long show, you know? And so uh, what we did, we joined, uh, Byron Saxton, Booker T Lawler and me, and we did the pregame and the prayer hour, the, the halftime where they did the prayer thing. So, uh, that was it. Not one match, nothing. So that was all I did at 18. So my contract was coming due, uh, just before, uh, WrestleMania. And I told Vince, I said, I, I don't need to, my, he didn't even say nothing. No, that's, that's wrong. I, I, my contract came due, due and I, during the dialogue, I said, I just don't want to renegotiate. I don't want to, I need to change Vince. I got it. I said, look, if anybody can understand this, it's you. You're 70 years old plus and still on TV, still doing things because it's your company and you enjoy it. You enjoy performing. Well, Vince, I enjoy performing. And I worked twice in 2018. He didn't even realize that. So, uh, I, I said, I'm just not going to renegotiate. So then our agent, Barry Bloom had been having conversations with Tony Khan, who had met a, a year and a half or so earlier with Alex Marvez in long beach during the new Japan weekend for access TV. Those, those Saturday, Sunday shows that we did, uh, that one time. And Tony came there as a fan. Hell, I didn't know who he was. He came there as a fan and I met him and I loved talking to him. We had a lot of fun, had drinks. Shot the shit. He, what a recall. My God, what a recall. Yeah, totally. He's quoting, he's quoting Chris. He's quoting uh, me from matches that happened before he was born. Right. It's like, <laughs> God, oh my, this guy's got something here. He's, he's passionate. He's really passionate. He's got product knowledge for a, a quote unquote fan. Little did I know where we're going to be today. So, uh, then Barry brought, started talking to Tony and, uh, 
we, we came to an agreement. And so my contract ended, the word got out that I was going to go to AEW. And then, then the text message started coming. I wanted you to do WrestleMania this year. Well, first of all, your people that were doing the contracts shit the bed because you'd never have somebody you're counting on have a contract expire the week before WrestleMania made no sense. And well, I know that sometimes up around here, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I just told him, I said, look, I appreciate all you've done. I'm not mad, but Vince, I got to get out of the house. I don't have Jan here anymore, man. I, I, my best friend's gone. The love of my life is gone. So the next love of my life is wrestling and I got to get back and I got to fall back in love somehow. And to do that, I got to play. And I know you don't have plans for me to play. I'm not going to beg you for a job. I don't believe I deserve to do that to myself. So I said, we're just going to have to part ways. And he said, he said, very kind. He said, well, can I, can I match the offer? And I said, well, no. Well, yeah, you can. Yeah, of course you can, but you won't because you'll think it's a bad business deal. And I said, so I don't even want to talk to you about it. He said, well, you know, there's anything I can do to make it better for you or whatever. He was, he was very, uh, solemn in that regard because he realized at that point in time that we were done. I'd ridden with him as long and as far as I could. Uh, we saved a lot of money. I didn't need to work at all, quite frankly. And, uh, and thanks to him I, and I'm always being indebted. He helped my family, my grandkids, my grandkids are going to go to college with Vince McMahon money. I am, how can I be mad at that? So I just decided that, that I, I got, Tony wanted me back in the game. Tony wanted me to become the voice of AEW. You're my guy. We're going to build this brand as far as the sound of it around you. And that's, you know, then, then I was, I loved that deal. And, and I got to play again. And I like being with Tony and the Chris, I, I miss going to work now. Something terrible. I, I, I envy you guys that are there that are, that are geographically compatible enough to get to where we're doing TV and, and voiceovers and all those things. I really miss that because I have made an emotional investment in AEW that I, uh, I am coveting. I love it. It's going to extend my life. It's going to extend my career. So, uh, well, that was the deal. I was inactive. I was like that quarterback on the sideline. Y'all ever, when you see a game there, the backup quarterback or the backup to the backup is standing over there with a sun visor on and a clipboard in his hand. <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy. I want to play, give me a Jersey and put me in the game. Let me see what I can do. So that was the deal. I, I want to get back in the game. It wasn't there for WWE. And so luckily for me, uh, Tony Khan came along and man, that was a, that was a blessing quite frankly. And I think you probably feel a lot the same way. Well, it was a huge deal to get you for sure. Cause it gave, once again, it was another name that people trusted, you know, well, Jericho's there. Jim Ross is there. Well, let's check this out. And it would be much the same way with me that I had left WWE with no intention of working anywhere else. Ended up doing the match with Kenny at the Tokyo Dome and, and kind of rediscovered my love for the creative side of wrestling. Because as you know, it's the WWE system. It works. They're made millions and billions of dollars, but it's a, it's a, it's a different vibe than what we do in AEW. And to get a chance to kind of be, you know, be my own guy again it changed everything for me. And then when I told Vince about it, actually, I couldn't even get him on the phone. They, they both those guys played telephone tag with me. And I was like, you know what? I'm not playing that game. And, and when Barry told Vince the offer to Triple H, uh, Vince told Triple H, tell him to take it. So I took it. And then Vince called me later and was like, can you get out of it? I'm like, we already told him to take it. Like, like you said, you weren't at the time. And now he would match both of our deals in a second. At Probably, the time, yeah. yeah, we we 
helped orchestrate an entire change in the whole salary structure of the WWE in that everyone got a huge raise because we signed the contract. You think did any of the boys call and thank you? <laughs> I had one or two out of really? three out of three hundred. <laughs> well, at least some of them are paying attention. Look, it's yeah. I, I'm a wrestling fan, Chris, like you are. We're lifers, man. This is what we do. Now I know you're uh, Fozzie is a big thing, and and one of my favorite memories was uh, on the cruise and hearing your band play in person for the first time. And yeah. I heard you know multiple times. I loved it, and you know, I almost know the lyrics to Judas. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a video. Sit it in. That's it'll right. Make, yeah, please. We'll put it on the show. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just, we have to live as best we can with what we love, whether it's our family or significant others. You know, you're blessed with a great wife and a wonderful, beautiful family. And I had Jan for 25 years, married 26 or seven years together. I'm blessed, man. I look, I, I was so angry when she died, man. I, I quit shaving. I quit wearing my watch. I didn't want to be around anybody. I was going through deep ass depression. And when you, and then back in the WWE days, as I write about, I never told this story that, you know, I'm, I'm self-medicating. I've got horrible sleep apnea. I, I stopped breathing 66 times in a minute. I didn't even know I had it until Jan told our doctor, I think he stops breathing at night. And the doctor says, what? I said, yeah, I think he starts breathing. She said, well, we got to get him a sleep test. So I, the next day I'm doing a sleep test. He's just testing the world for me- medically. And I, 66 times in an hour, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not breathing. So, uh, it was just put the strain on your heart, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, I didn't know all that back in the, in Stanford. And so consequently, I, I, I believe that, you know, the sleep apnea was a big villain for me, but then I didn't also didn't know that my intestines were being per- was perforating. So now I've got stomach aches. Like you can never believe in your life double over. Uh, I'm afraid to go to the bathroom stomach aches. This is killing me. So consequently, uh, I just, uh, decided that I had to make some changes and, you know, we left Stanford and that was, that did not set well with Vince. He said, even though he said it was good, here's the right. take and get, he said, I finally said the second or third time I've made a pass at it. I said, are you sure you're okay with me moving back to Oklahoma? Based on my work schedule, what you got me doing, I can do all those things right there in there in Oklahoma. I'll be near my children and my grandchildren are getting older. I've kind of just, uh, I haven't paid as much attention to them as a lot of us would like to in our families when they're young because we're out on the road doing our thing. And so, uh, he finally said, God damn it. Yes. And don't ask me again. So then, uh, then I'm sitting in the backyard with Kevin Dunn at an OU game, uh, OU weekend. And he said, and we're drinking, and as you could imagine, and he said, well, JR, I think you know why he's mad. You deserted him. What? I got his permission. I didn't mean nothing. He didn't want, he didn't want to say to you, I need you here. Stay. That's all he would have had to say. Uh, right. That's right. all he would have had to say, Chrissy, is I need you here. Stay. He didn't do that. So I thought I had the green light. Now, luckily for me, when I got here, I, I went, that's when I got diagnosed. I got diagnosed one day and it was in intensive care 48 hours later. That's how sick I was. And then that, of course that led it to, we talked about earlier, the Dr. Honey thing when I got out of the hospital, but, uh, it was, a, it was a hell of a journey there, man. I was falling apart. I was sick. And then of course the sleep, I took Ambien for 10 years, which is a kiss of death. And, uh, and then when I, when the Ambien, I started building up a tolerance to Ambien, Chris, I chased it with a Xanax. Wow. Yeah. And then 
and there's more. I wait, I wait, there's more. <laughs> and then if that didn't quite get me where I needed to be sleep wise, I'd have me a couple of shots of crown Royal. So now you got ambient Xanax and crown Royal. God damn. I'm smart. That really made a lot of sense. You did it. So, uh, and I, I got off of all, I don't do any opiates right now. And I, and I, I'll have a cocktail with you. Me and you've had plenty of cocktails, but I don't, yep. I don't see that being a big issue. We're both great goose guys. So anyway, uh, that's kind of where that was, man. I just, it was a lot of personal issues, but it had not been for her, Jan being there and being always loyal, always patient. And more importantly, always positive. She was a cool chick. She was a cool chick and nobody in my life before and I'm predicting after, which I'm not being closing the door, nobody in my life will ever love me like that again. Last couple of questions for you, man. Just a, a little bit of a lighter situation. It's something you kind of alluded to in the book. When you were out there calling a four-hour WrestleMania uh, or longer sometimes, did you ever have to go to the bathroom? And how would you do that uh, if you couldn't get up and leave during the show? <laughs> I think people think that we... Uh, I, I used to tell kid people that Lawler and I uh, went to the doctor before every those pay per views. Got, got our catheters installed with a with a with a pee bag. I say this all the time, and it's really it's intended for a little bit of humor, but it's true. You wear darks. You wear darks. Really? And, oh yeah. If you, if you got to go, I ain't leaving. I ain't leaving my post. I'm I'm armed and I'm dangerous. I'm here. I'm on guard. I'm on duty. <laughs> and and I, I to tell you that I didn't have a little uh, accident on occasion be a lie, but that's why you never wear your working clothes to, you got all, you got to change your clothes with you, man. So if you got a little dribble, a little, you know, a little something, something, but you got to monitor your, 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 uh, liquid intake. So we got a seven o'clock show about five o'clock. I'm done drinking anything until right. the show starts and I'll sip on some hot tea or some coffee or just water or whatever, but you wear darks and you hope that your bladder will maintain the worst pain I've had is not peeing myself uh, and, and having to hold it, hold it, hold it, like a little kid on a long car trip with their parents, telling their dad, I got to pee, I got to pee, I got to pee. <laughs> and he's still driving the son of a bitch. So, <laughs> so, and so then you run to the back and you uh, run through Gorilla like I'm on fire. And uh, yeah. that's, that's always got a kick out of that. He said, uh, I'll talk to you later, JR, after you pee. <laughs> <laughs> Yell it out, right? Did you guys ever have the, we used to have the, the, the piss bottle. Uh, on long car rides, just in case you couldn't stop, if you're late for a town or something, just pee into the water bottle, and hopefully that uh, you, 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 you you are able to to fill it just to the brim. Yeah, never did have the pee bottle because uh, <laughs> I got no I got no shame in pulling the car over on a busy interstate and taking a piss. The worst pain I was in one time, I was driving through Dallas, going to I think going to Waco, where I got fired, and uh, but I got I, I went through. Instead of going around uh, uh, I-35 in downtown Dallas in rush hour traffic, I went through, I took that route. And, man, it was stop and go. Couldn't get change, change lanes. The only salvation I had was I had stopped at Chick-fil-A and got me a big iced tea, which was really smart. I forgot it's got to pee. So I poured the iced tea out and used the Chick-fil-A, uh, 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 there you go. the big gulp thing, you know, whatever it was, and uh, to pee. Then pour the pee out the door, and people are looking at you like, "What the? <laughs> is that urine?" Yes, sir. It sure is. And I Life on the road, up. baby. <laughs> Last question for you, and this might be hard for you to answer. Uh, what is is there one match that stands out, or as as the best match you've ever called? A few of them. 
Yeah, a few of them. You know, uh, obviously the one we talked about earlier uh, that that you had to follow in WrestleMania 18, Rock and Hogan, was a moment. Yes, the moment where two icons, two legitimate icons, Ben sat around. He's a legend. He's an icon. Those guys are legends, and they are icons. And I and Lawler and I got to call that match on the big stage. That was really cool. The three uh, Austin Rock 15, 17, and 19 main events were always going to be special because of my relationship with both guys. I love the fact uh, the night that you beat uh, Triple H and Austin, mm. same night, and uh, it was uh, that was a Rock and Austin, Rock and Rock and I'm sorry, Rock and Austin, yeah. Austin. yeah. So uh, that was a great one, you know. And of course, the most the most mentioned one is Undertaker throwing Foley off the cell. Shit, right? Yeah, man. In 1998. Now here, listen to this deal. I'm standing in Dallas here, not that long ago. This in in in, in one of our trips in, in AEW trips and in, in the fall. Mm-hmm. I'm in the uh, priority lane, getting ready to board, group one type deal. And uh, this guy standing behind me, he's really really close. I mean, he's in my space, really. He's just like. I'm thinking I'm auditioning for a goddamn prison movie. He's right in my, behind my <laughs> chair, you know? And he says, uh, as God is my witness, he's broken in half. So now the son of it starts doing all the dialogue from 1998. <laughs> and so I, I said, okay, you know, I, I'm a pretty good sport. I turn around. It's going to say something to the guy. And his son was with him. He was like 10, 12 years old. He said, we're, he said, we are sorry, Jr. But my dad does this all the time. And my mom hates it. So they still remember dialogue from 1998. Right. So that, that Undertaker match stuck with a lot of folks. But, you know, Chris, there's been so many great ones. You know, uh, there was matches on TV. I remember, uh, I think it was a Iron Man match on television. Might have been from London or something with Sean and Kurt, I think. Mm-hmm. That was pretty special because it was kind of new and seamless. And uh, Sean Michaels finally got in the ring with somebody that was a, a better athlete than him. Mm-hmm. And it showed how it raised Sean's game. And then because who Kurt was with, it raised Kurt's game. It was the perfect storm. Things like that pop in my head. And, and, and quite frankly, before, uh, and I had some John Cena matches that I, that I enjoyed in his early days where he was really working his ass off to get over and was a brute, you know, wasn't a, com- he wasn't doing more comedy than drama. I've always been a big fan that, and like an AEW, I enjoy the stuff that you did. That's sizzle. It's fun. It's sizzle. It's entertainment. But we always will remember with Tony Khan at the helm and guys like yourself and Moxley and all the other guys we talked about, we have to deliver the stake. We have to deliver solid sports oriented, believable, logical pro wrestling. And I think that's what we're going to be doing, uh, on Wednesday nights on TNT. And, and I'm, I'm really, I'm tickled to hell to be a part of it. And soon we'll be back being a part of it. But, uh, we just got to get this damn virus under control and cause I'm not going to risk it. You know, I'm just not going to risk it until, and Tony Khan does want me to risk. My job is safe. That's the great thing about this deal. I sit here at home. I'm not paranoid. I'm not worried about losing my spot. You know, I, I know my job is waiting on me when I'm, when the That's coast, right. is, coast is clear to, to, to travel and I'll be more than ready to come kick some ass. I can tell you that. So I'm i uh, I've been, it's been a blessed deal. And you know, I made, I made a, I was, kind of downtrodden about all this as a virus for many reasons. And for me selfishly was, well, the Barnes and Nobles are closed or the books of million are closed. So what are you going to do? Well, you go to jrbbq.com or you go to Amazon or you go to walmart.com or target.com and the book will be delivered to your front door. So, uh, that we've, we've made that work out pretty good. And, and, uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with that deal. The book's doing great with three days after it was released. It was the number one selling sports biography on Amazon. And I was ranked right there with Kobe Bryant's book. I thought that's pretty damn cool. No, it's great. And then the way the world is it now, I mean, I was fortunate that you gave me a copy, but I was reading it at night uh, just on my phone off Kindle, which I, I picked up a copy. So you can, you can still get this book, uh, even if you can't go to the bookstores and it's, it's a great read and it's the perfect time to read it. So, uh, Jim, it's always great talking to you, man. I could talk to you all day long and, uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get a chance. Well, if I know I'll get a chance to see you again very, very soon. Yeah, me too, buddy. I, I, I value our friendship. Uh, you were one of the most significant hires that I, that I was lucky enough to ever make. And, uh, good old Jerry Briscoe was right there at my side, just like he was so many other guys. And, and, uh, you were always, and now even a bigger, uh, asset to this company than you've ever been with any other company, because you're allowed to create your own content by and large, and you're motivated. You're still a hell of a worker. I can tell you that. So I, I love you, Chris. And thank you very much for having me on. And, and, uh, you know, I'm always here for you. Thank you, Jim. Love you too, man. Thanks for everything. And, uh, looking forward to seeing you again soon. Okay, buddy.